were the people of Jesus? The lame, the poor, the marginalized, the broken, the unloved. Why did he gather these? Because following Jesus is not a power trip. It is a journey of grace. How amazing it is to have such a partner for our lives. How wonderful to be called beloved by a God who shares every step with us as we struggle, doubt, fear. How great this grace that keeps us moving toward the kingdom, whether we run or walk or stumble along. Please join Pastor Glenn Thomas as we find our way through life together. verse for today comes from Psalms 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. My God, I put my trust in you. Let me not be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. There is a lot of enemy language in the Bible. A lot of pushing and shoving, a lot of conflict between different groups, between the Israelites as they come into the promised land between the members of the patriarchal family as they make their way through their lives. Maybe that's partly why religion is so violent. So many of the wars through the history of the human race have been about, in one dimension or another, religion, about faith, about whose God was bigger than who else's God. Uh, of course, as Lutherans, we bring some of that heritage with us. For almost a century after Luther published the 95 Thesis, Europe was torn apart by war between Protestants and Catholics, uh, wars that have not completely been finished even now. And so that notion, that language, that thinking about me and you, us and them, us and our enemies is so much a part of our faith context and and particularly, of course, uh, in the context of the Old Testament, although there's certainly a lot of violence between the new early apostolic Christian community and both the Roman world in which they lived and the Jewish community from which they'd come. But how do we carry that language forward now? What do we, what do, we do with that sort of, of thought uh, is faith only about this battle against our enemies, real or perceived? Is that really what believing in Jesus and following Jesus is about? Is about being engaged in this constant warfare against someone else out there? Or is it maybe more valuable to us spiritually, personally, more valuable to our faith to understand this greater truth? That the real enemy of faith is us. It's us. It's our self-serving ways. It's our focus on uh, our own doing, on our own needs, on what is within the reach of our own grasp. That the real enemy is this constant selfishness that turns us back in upon ourself and away from the path of discipleship. 
Making enemies actually is a part of that. That's why it is so easy for us to be in confrontation with others when our eyes are only turned in on what we want and what we think and what we believe and how badly we want to come out on top. The truth is is that enmity is one of our great sins. And it serves our needs in a couple of ways. One is that we really do often need someone to blame things on. I think that's easier than taking responsibility for our own failures, taking responsibility for the way that the world is. We need to be someone else's fault. And so we are very good, in fact, at making enemies with others. And it gives us an excuse for not solving problems, for not fixing the world. We can't get anything done because of, you know, them. And so the world goes on in this broken way and the kingdom of God stays far apart from us. The solution, as the psalmist tells us, though, is just simply trusting in God to give all of the brokenness in our hearts and in our world over to God is how we get out of this constant, violent, confrontational life that we live. It reminds us, too, that sin is is truly dangerous not sin in the sense of naughtiness of breaking little commandments but this sense of selfishness this need to constantly triumph over the others this inability to love and to give and to serve as jesus taught us to do to get past this we need to place everything we have in god and trust in this path that has been set before us to give of ourselves to make ourselves vulnerable to not be afraid of what might be out there in the end the only thing that is triumphing over us is our own shortcomings our short-sightedness our lack of faith the way forward leads to a cross. A word today is goi, or often but generally mispronounced as goi, translated especially in the Old Testament as ethnos or the Gentiles as it came to be in the New Testament. In fact, most usually translated as the nations, uh, a way of referring to them, the other people, the non-Hebrew people in the world, uh, those who are not part of the community of Israel. It used in other ways too, but that kind of is uh, where it becomes key, I think, to our conversation today. I want to say from the beginning, this is a tricky word for a Gentile to be translating. It's not our word. I was often reminded by a teacher at the seminary that when we work in the Old Testament, we must always be mindful that we're reading someone else's mail. And so to talk about how someone else uses a word to describe us is a pretty dangerous thing. But I think it's pretty clear in the Old Testament that the world was, for the chosen people, for the Israelites, divided into two groups, us and them. And they were to be a particular people, a people who had been set aside, uh, people who were chosen, but people who were also given this covenant that defined their life often in terms of being above and different from the rest of the world. 
The question today is, how does that word, how does that idea apply to us in the Christian community of faith in the modern world? Because it's also true that uh, we are to be a people set aside. We are given a very particular way to live, a very particular path, what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that is, in fact, considerably different from the way that the world generally operates and the way that the world generally invites us to live, though not usually in the way we want to make that definition. The question is, why do we always want to define that in terms of superiority, some quality that separates us from them, not just simply as a distinction in the way we attempt to follow the words and life and works of Jesus, but is that somehow we are better than them because of this identity that we have taken up for ourselves? A couple of things I find fascinating about the way that we do that. I think it's important for us to be mindful that the Old Testament laws were always about serving, about serving others. They were not simply about being superior to others. And in fact, in the what we would call the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, there are 36 different references to aliens, to foreigners, to those who are different. All of those references centering on the idea of treating them justly, of welcoming and connecting to them. There's no sense of lording it over these strangers or treating them as somehow inferior. The second thing, I think, is to remember that what's clear in all of the Bible and in the Old Testament, to be sure, is that those who are chosen, the Israelites, never actually live up to the covenant that God made with them, never actually demonstrate some superiority in terms of their ethic or their life to the world around them. In fact, it is always and only by grace that the Israelites survive that God holds them together, that God brings his people forward. It's for his purposes, not for theirs, that they have been chosen. And it is for his work, the bringing of his salvation into the world, that they exist and not for their own. That should be unsettling to us. Because I think the modern Christian church truly abuses this idea of otherness. We are very good at cutting others out of the kingdom of God, of making pronouncements of those who we think do not belong in the community of faith and will never make their way into the kingdom of God. And in that way, we face the same problems in our own misunderstanding of what our faith is and what it means for us to be part of God's called and chosen people. We ignore, for example, that Jesus is a boundary breaker, that he is constantly hanging out with those whom the world has rejected, with tax collectors and sinners, that he's constantly working across boundaries and actually connecting to Gentiles and non-Jews. We have that same problem of not being able to see the log in our own eye because we are so focused on the speck in our neighbor's. So we forget that we are saved by grace alone as well. 
And we do not understand that God's grace is an expansive idea and not a restrictive one. It is his way of constantly reaching out and bringing others into his kingdom while we are so busy shutting out the doors to those whom we have proclaimed do not belong. While there is this word that appears throughout the scriptures that seems to divide the world into us's and them, when it comes to be in the New Testament, when it comes to be in the work of the Church of Jesus Christ is in fact a group to whom we are called, a people God has chosen to receive the gift of his promise. Love is but a song we sing Fierce we will die We've become really bad in the church at having hard conversations about hard topics. In fact, it seems that we've taken all of these important topics and we've just simply given them away so that they become political conversations or at least social matters, when at the heart they are very much spiritual problems. Part of the reason that we do that, I think, is because we want the gospel, we want the church to be focused on very uh, narrow ideas, on personal behaviors, on our own individual spirituality and our individual choices. And we have cast off two really important parts of our mission. One is to be the church in the world, to be a participant in the kingdom of this world as representatives of the kingdom of God. And the other is because We don't want to deal with difficult topics. We don't want to deal with gray questions. The last thing we want to have to wrestle with is uncertainty. We want the gospel to be clean and clear and simple. We do not want to do the hard work of wrestling with hard matters. But that should be exactly our mission. That should be exactly our purpose. So for the next couple of weeks, I'd like us to spend some time talking about a very hard and important conversation that is terribly current in our world right now, and that's the question of racism. The way that we separate ourselves from each other because of our ethnicity, because of the color of our skin, because of where we come from, and the way we make these decisions to to hold one group over the other the way that we so easily cast off some people because they're not like us. It's not just a problem in the world. This is absolutely a problem in the church. And the truth is is that the church is as it has been throughout the history, especially of this country, right at the heart of the problem. The church has been the judge. The church has been the one who has made it easy for us to dismiss other people who are not like us. But that's not how we're supposed to be. That is not what the Word of God tells us. And so for the next couple of weeks, I want to explore a couple of pieces of Scripture particularly. Not to say that these are the only ones, because this is a wide theme that passes through all of the Bible. That discuss the idea of oneness. Of what it means to be a part of the whole race of humanity. And not just the white part, or the black part, or the brown part. At the heart of this matter, there is this very hard question for us to answer. What is it that separates people from each other? And especially in the church, 
What is it that's coming between us? And on what faulty understanding of faith are we basing the divisiveness that we are using to tear the world apart? A long history to that question and a long history to its answer. And maybe we won't be able to uncover all of it, and maybe we don't need to uncover all of it. Because ultimately what we need to do is come closer to a different question, which is, how do we overcome this? How do we undo this long history? How do we become the people that God put us here to be so that we can live together with his whole people and not just the ones that are like us? In Isaiah 59, the prophet says, Peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. And that last little phrase really reminds us of of how spiritual an issue this is. Not just simply a political matter or social matter, but a, a problem about the brokenness in our souls, in our faith, that needs to be healed and can only be healed by the God who comes to make us one. So today I wanted to start with uh, the verses, uh, these verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 18, because they're a great place for us to start as we kind of try to dig our way deeper into this topic. You'll notice if you go back and read the entire second chapter of the book of Ephesians that there is a shift in the beginning of the end of the chapter as Paul is writing to this new community of Christians that begins with kind of you language where he talks about the Gentiles, these new converts to faith, talks about them. And then at the end of the chapter, he shifts toward a we language as he begins to help them understand how they are incorporated in this larger community with these very Jewish roots. And I think then also speaks then to that existing synagogue community to help them understand how to incorporate these new Gentile believers into the church as well. Paul always draws from his own conversion experience, right, of how he was met on the road to Damascus and how God drew him into a new life and made him part of a new community, a a community that Paul had stood against, a community that Paul had persecuted, he had rounded up and arrested and put into prison, and that it was God's work to make Paul a part of that community. And, and that understanding of how God worked and how faith functioned very much shaped then the way that Paul talked about how faith functioned in the brand new Christian church. So I want to start in verse 13 where we read these words. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The first question that jumps into my mind is, is far off from what? Uh, not far off from God. As Paul has obviously discovered in his own life and ministry, God is constantly near, engaged, and involved in all of the people of the world. I think the far off refuse to those who were far off from the community of faith, those who had been separated from uh, the traditional roots of God's people. Uh, Paul is is catching on to what has been an ongoing conflict between the synagogue community and and this new emerging Christian faith community that called themselves the way. 
And and for Paul, that separation was not so much about their personal faith or their personal quality as it was about their sense of religion, their structure and their organization of the way that their faith was being practiced. And so Paul uses this brought near language, this kind of joining language, to help these two very dissimilar groups find some way to be together. Uh, now, Paul, of course, raised Jew, calls himself a Pharisee, meaning that he sees himself very much an expert in the ways of practicing the Torah, in the ways of the of the synagogue community, um, but also raised out in the world with a very Gentile education, a citizen of Rome. Paul is uniquely situated, in fact, to understand both what separates those two communities and what it means for them to be brought near. Now, normally joining a new community, bringing groups together, would require uh, some kind of uh, a, a program, something that had to be done, some kind of an initiation to become a part of a community. But here Paul talks about that work being done externally by Christ. All the verbs in this sentence are passive. You were brought near, not you chose to come near, not dependent on someone's willingness to join the synagogue community or to make a connection to uh, the ancient practice of the Hebrew religion, but, but this work that Christ is doing to bring these groups into something new. And so it goes on then in verse 14 to say, For he is our peace, he being Christ. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. Some scholars talk about, uh, in verses 14 through 18, um, maybe fragments fragments of an uh, ancient hymn or, or maybe a creedal statement. So Paul's not just writing a piece of theology here, but, but using poetry really to talk about hope and aspiration. I mean, I don't think Paul is naive. I think Paul understands uh, very seriously how difficult uh, it is to bring these two disparate groups somehow together. Uh, in part because he sees himself as part of that process, right? The hostility between us. Uh, I almost hear Paul talking about the hostility within his own self and his own experience in these two very different paths that have come together for him. Um, so he defines Christ then as our peace. Uh, again, this focus on unity being the work of Christ, not just you know a rational discourse, let's sit down and have a debate and negotiate some kind of a treaty so we can live together, but something greater, something spiritual, something that Jesus is up to in the world. And, and so when Paul talks about the two, he, he, he leads it to the idea of them becoming one, that it will be a brand new thing, not one or the other and not any part of either, but something that will start completely new. And so in, in these verses, then he starts talking about what are the things then that break up community? What are the things that are getting in the way of us becoming what Christ arose to create in the world? And he talks about a dividing wall, some kind of a barrier. He defines that barrier as hostility, 
right? Anger and violence. And certainly when we talk about racism in our world today, that has to be a part of our conversation. Not just, and frankly not even, the violence that we see in in the protests that comes with that, but hundreds of years of violence, centuries upon centuries of violence being done to minority communities, both here in this country and all over the world, right? The slavery, the abuse that's been allowed to be put upon some people simply because of the color of their skin. And that hostility that has been historically part of our relationship with people of other races is the thing that we must overcome, that we must repent of, that we must atone for, that we must make good on if there's to be any hope of an end to this enmity between us. And and then he talks about abolishing the law, which I think is really kind of fascinating. I mean, we forget that the whole point of God's law of this covenant is that it is designed to bring us together, to help us live together uh, as one people, where we often use it as a tool to separate others from ourselves, to to sort of uh, wedge people out of our community. In fact, it's meant to remind us of two things. One is that we share in common one God, that we are to to have that common faith together and to find our oneness in God. And that the most of the the great majority of the of the law of the Bible of the whole of the covenant is really uh, rules, instructions, guidelines, helpful hints, if you will, of how it is that we can live together in peace. Right? It's about how we treat one another, how we show respect to one another, how we allow each other some integrity, and about how we work together. That really is most of the law. Um, seven of the Ten Commandments, frankly, and, and to have reduced them to somehow of ways to categorize people and build walls between people is a horrible abuse of the scriptures. And so Paul says Jesus has come to abolish the scriptures, by which Paul means that to make them inactive or inoperative, not to make them unimportant. Not to make them matter. In fact, I think as we seek to build community, as we seek to end racism, if we were serious about the way we read the Bible, we would find lots of of useful, helpful, important uh, words there. But that it would not be a burden on us or that we would not use the law as a burden on others, as a tool for tearing each other apart. Right. You'll notice it that in much of, of Paul's conversation here, he he sort of shapes uh, this idea of what was then, that is what was before and and what is now, what is new. And often that Paul works in that way uh, through all of his writings. And it reminds us that then before Christ, perhaps, or before we all really discovered the light of the word, uh, that we often use the law as sort of this path that leads to guilt and and to shame uh, and and miss out on that that in the light of Easter we discover that the words of the law are a tool. They are a way for us to build something brand new, and that new thing is peace. And so again, as we go on, Paul says in verse 16 uh, that he might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility 
through it. Fascinating here that that Paul sees the cross as an instrument of creation and not just destruction. In in Jesus' time, the cross was an instrument of torture, and it was a way that the state, that the empire expressed its hostility and created fear and terror among the people. It was a way that they kept people in line and, and built barriers within the community. But now, because of the resurrection, Jesus has turned the cross into something else, this place where... The divine God and the human man are joined together forever. And doing so becomes then the model of community. Community is built on serving, on sacrificing, on what we do and give for others, and not just for ourselves, not how we keep others at arm's length, but even as God brings himself near to our pain and suffering, our humanity, our mortality in the cross. So we are brought nearer and nearer to our neighbors as well. To finish up verses 17 to 19, Paul says, So Christ claimed and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. What is peace? I mean, that's really the question as we start to talk about racism, about this long history of violence and enmity and separation we have from one another. I think especially an important question today in the midst of the violence that we are seeing and are continuing to see uh, in our world now. What we want to hear from Paul is that peace is not just a a new relationship, uh, a new attitude, not just a truce or a treaty that we create between two separate groups. It's about a new way of being, a new way of living, a new kind of faith, a a path that leads us closer to God. And that's where this becomes very much a spiritual question and where we are faltering so badly in the way we are dealing with it now in the world, that we are no longer strangers in ourselves. We are no longer estranged from God and, and being part of God's household, being a saint of God, gives us the vision, the spirit, and the strength to live together with all of our brothers and sisters and not merely the ones who look and are like us. What causes racism in the world is our refusal to live a new and different life, that we have settled into old patterns and old ways of thinking and old ways of being, that we've refused to own up to and atone for this long history that we have, that we have refused to change. And so we perpetuate systems of privilege and systems of discrimination. And the only way that those become destroyed is that we become destroyed, that we give up who we were, so that we might become something different. The distinction that Paul makes throughout this passage, and I think, frankly, throughout all of his language, is not a distinction between people, but a distinction of time, a distinction of this path of discipleship, 
a distinction from where we begin to where Jesus is leading us, a distinction of what we were then and what we can become now. If we're ready to have a serious conversation about something like racism in this world, we cannot do it until we are willing to risk everything. Not just everything in terms of the organization of our society or of our world or the ways of our behavior or our old structures of society, but of us. Whether we are willing to put our very lives and souls on the line and let God do something brand new and amazing with us. For here is the promise that leads us forward. We are not who we think we are. We are not here to live the lives we are living. We need not be people separated, people turned against one another, people who live in racism and hatred and fear. God is at work in us and in our world, leading us to a new place and time, giving us new hearts that we, as we are at peace with him, may learn to be at peace with one another. This podcast is a ministry of St. Matthew Lutheran Church, Omaha, Nebraska. It is edited by Rick Swanson, posted and promoted by Jacob York. If you have questions, comments, or topics you'd like to suggest, please write us at beloved at smlutheran.com. Yeah.